Stamping out greenwashing, collecting and analysing data, the digitisation of the financial system, benchmarks and financial stability are among key areas of focus for the European Securities and Markets Authority. Hi, I'm Justin Pugsley, Editor of Global Risk Regulator. We have run many stories and podcasts relating to securities, ESG and digital regulation. You can find out more on www.globalriskregulator.com. For this podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Verena Ross, Chair of ESMA, who discusses the work of the authority and how it is tackling various looming challenges. Hi, Verena. Thank you so much for joining us today to discuss ESMA's work. Um, Now, ESMA has a role to play in steering capital markets towards supporting the transition to cleaner energy sources, with sustainable finance disclosure regulation being an example of that. However, many EU countries are turning to some of the dirtiest fuels, such as coal, to keep the lights on, probably for the next couple of winters at least. So do, do you see a big setback for climate friendly policies? And in your view, will it impact or delay the implementation of EU ESG plans and regulations? Thank you, Justin, and a pleasure to be with you. As a financial markets authority of Europe, ESMA can improve transparency and disclosure, as well as investor protection with regards to financial products being sold as sustainable or supporting the energy transition. We can obviously not directly influence member states' choices when it comes to the energy mix that they use. And um, therefore, for me, it's difficult to tell whether there is going to be a setback and uh, to what extent. But I certainly personally hope that, at least in the medium term, the situation will push us to further build up alternative sustainable energy sources in Europe. In terms of the priorities on this topic for ESMA, as also explained in our recently released ESMA strategy for the next five years, it is really about effectiveness and integrity of the ESG information, an improved ESG regulatory framework and supervision on the ground. I I, I guess one of the problems that everyone complains about, and you you probably have a view on this, is is the actual data in order to properly analyze what people are doing. I mean, do, do you have any thoughts around that? You know, the sort of purity of that data, its usefulness and so on? Um, certainly that is one of the key priorities for us is making sure that there is good data out there through disclosure and transparency and really having that throughout the whole of the investment chain. So yeah. starting with the companies on the ground that will have to disclose under the corporate sustainability disclosure regulation and the standards that are currently being built by AFRAC that will be endorsed by the Commission. And ESMA has a role to play here to provide an opinion and ultimately also in working with the national supervisors on looking at whether the companies that are under that reporting obligation actually are providing that information in the right way, in a comprehensive way, looking at the key materiality issues for their company. And then we move into other parts of the system. And you mentioned, for example, SFDR. That's then about making sure that that information is properly included 
in the products that are ultimately being provided and sold to investors and so on. And so ESMA is really involved across the whole of the investment chain, as I said, from the initial company disclosure to the product disclosure, ultimately yep. to making sure that sustainability considerations are properly built into the suitability assessment and other parts of the advice and sale process to the retail investors. And we need to get that right, really, to build the trust of the investor and maintain trust in the um, this market, which is so important to bring the right investors into supporting the sustainable transition. No, indeed. And, and, and I guess um, kind of related to the whole data thing is, 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 of course, greenwashing, which is a big problem everywhere. And I know it's something that EU authorities I'm very focused on, um, you know, the European Commission and so on. Can you discuss what you see as some of the worst examples, most egregious examples of greenwashing and the kind of measures you're trying to, to implement to stamp out those practices? Tackling greenwashing is definitely one of the most important issues, uh, given it creates detriment to investors who want to uh, yep. invest uh, part of their or a lot of their investments into the sustainable transition. There's enormous demand from investors for products that are sustainable. And, to, and at the same time, that comes then with the risk that there will be greenwashing because everyone will want to market their product uh, as green. Therefore, we are indeed looking very closely in that, at that. It has to be said that part of the work that we need to do is to align concepts, definitions and practices across Europe. And, and the regulatory framework is still in its infancy at the moment. It's developing very fast, but at the same time, it's quite complex. And therefore, we need to, as ESMA, support the implementation of that framework through provision of guidance, through working with the national competent authorities also to have clear supervisory expectations on what is expected of firms. If I look at the particular areas where we can see some potential risks, certainly it is, I spoke earlier about the issues in corporate disclosure, where you know incorrect or omitted information in non-financial statements or prospectuses um, can clearly create issues and that is something that will lead to a lack of transparency and a limitation of being able to properly reflect what that company is about and how far it is actually um, part of a transition to a more sustainable economy, what the barriers might be, what the plan is to get, get there. And so um, we are uh, looking also at how to make sure as part of the disclosure to make the information more comparable and available in a way that actually then product providers or investors can properly absorb. It's yeah, no, great, great points. Um, I mean, Farina, I, I mean, are you, I mean, given this is a new area, it's still developing, are you satisfied where where the EU is or where EU bond issuers, those putting out prospectuses, the kind of data they're using, information putting out, are you fairly satisfied with where they are at the moment? You know, given this is still a evolving industry, not all the rules are in place yet and so on. 
it's definitely an evolving picture. And so I think it's too early to make a global judgment. Uh, it's clear that we see some who are very much at the forefront. Um, you know, if I look at some of the asset managers, they are clearly trying to make sure that under the SFDR, they provide proper disclosure, including what they're doing specifically, what their products involve, um, having the right documentation in place. But it is clear that there are still data limitations. There are issues around how some of these new rules are to be interpreted. And that is an ongoing challenge for market players, but also for us as supervisors in our supervisory activity. So yeah. it's a really common challenge, which also requires quite a lot of knowledge building and experience that we need to collectively do. And it's something where clearly um, there's still a long road to travel. So, um, and um, I would still emphasize that the fact that we moved very quickly in Europe has been an advantage. We have really set uh, the scene in a way and moved ahead, but that has naturally led to some complexity, some things where we now need to retrospectively relook at certain issues to make sure that everything fits well together in the end and that there's clarity in the framework, but also ultimately that the information is able to be absorbed by the end investor, because the complexity of the framework clearly is a barrier to that. And we need to think about other ways to making this information more easily understandable and comparable across different products and companies going forward. Okay, well, th thanks for that, Farina. Okay, now for years, um, es ESMA has been collecting a lot of, you know, granular and detailed data through a number of sort of reporting standards. I mean, one market and financial instrument directive comes to mind. Um, now, some some industry sources that I've spoken with over the years kind of question whether whether regulators have the have the capability of really using all this data making the best best use of it such as analyzing it and so on can you discuss some of the investments you are making in this area and you are, and how you're already extracting greater insights from this data yes sure i mean data has always been at the core of esma yeah. in a way we were created after the global financial crisis and one of the efforts was to try to create through a regulatory and reporting regime, greater ability for public authorities and for the market themselves to have visibility of what's actually going on. And so we've been part of that journey. Um, increased data has brought real advancements, I think for ESMA, for national authorities, but also for other EU public authorities to in our ability to do our regulatory and supervisory work and really analyze the market developments. Um, it remains a challenge. First of all, it's not perfect yet. Uh, there, will, there are still gaps in the data landscape. At the same time, it's also a fact that we have now huge amounts of data and there is a challenge, as you say, in handling, processing and analyzing that. Yeah. When it comes to the MIFID data set, if I may maybe explain a bit further, um, we are handling that significant data flow through two separate systems. One is one which we build very much in the wake of the MIFID II and MIFIA regulation a few years ago. And then more recently, we also have designed a big data platform um, that is able to 
bring some of the benefits of actually bringing that data together in one place and with the capacity to really use it and analyze it in an effective way. We are now also working on migrating other main data sets such as EMEA and SFTR, so more on the uh, trans uh, on the um, positions and um, and um, other parts of the system into this big data platform. And the new platform is really a qualitative jump for ESMA in terms of building on past experience, but also needing to continue to grow and go with the new technology to increase our capacity to use the ever richer data sets no. and be able to do proper work on it. Um, maybe just to say a couple of examples of the work that we do with the data. I mean, some of it you see in our analytical work on trends, risks and vulnerabilities report that we publish on our financial stability analysis. But we also use it in our policy work. So, for example, when we recently proposed um, thresholds for clearing obligation, we used EMEA data for that. Um, when we used work, on, when we did work on the carbon markets, we were able to use some of the data sets that we now have. And we also regularly publish data such as so-called double volume cap calculations, which help the market to know what they need to publish and so on. Okay, well, it certainly sounds like you're doing a tremendous amount of work around that. Um, okay, well, Wolverine, let, let, let's move on now to um, the Digital Operational Resilience Act and the Market and Crypto Assets Regulation, which, which are coming into force in the years ahead. Um, now, you know, the, these, these are kind of dealing with very new areas. So, I mean, can you discuss some of the challenges of implementing these new regimes and how you'll future-proof them because the digital environment is so rapidly evolving. Um, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on that, Farina? This is definitely one of the areas that we will work on a lot over the next few years. ESMA will be instrumental in making sure that Mika and Dora are effectively implemented. And uh, we are certainly intending to address the risks uh, that are arising from the greater digitalization more generally um, actively as we move ahead. In terms of the challenges, particularly with our new uh, mandates in this area, first of all, both crypto assets and the operational resilience are clearly novel and fast evolving areas. And so in particular, the crypto asset markets are constantly evolving and we see a multiplicity of players and business models, which we will need to keep a close eye on. Um, we as supervisors and also at the national level, we have very limited experience in this field since crypto assets um, and the oversight of critical third party ITC, ICT service providers are still pretty new and are not yet covered by EU law. So um, on top of that, the time frame is extremely short in actually doing the work that we need to do to um, develop the detailed technical standards and other guidance that we need to provide for the implementation of the two legislative proposals. And then um, we also need to make sure that we find the right proportionate approach to yeah. tackling some of these issues, because some of the players are clearly very big, global, mm. impactful uh, entities, while others are actually far smaller and more um, 
kind of narrow in their remit and we need to find the right way of tackling all of that. So it's constantly evolving. It's definitely something where we need to keep on our toes and where we need to make sure that we also as ESMA bring together the expertise of the national supervisors. And we've in a way already done that in the crypto space, even before Mika was finalized or will be implemented now in the over the next month. We brought the national supervisory experts together to look at sharing their experience and on the new products and services that are emerging and making sure that we share knowledge, that we help each other and yeah. really are able to think about what are the consistent approaches that we want to take in the implementation of this new um, regulatory framework. And as part of that, there's a more formal review clause. So we will also need to formally review how is the market developing? Is there a need for further legislative changes that are necessary, which we will provide as advice to the uh, commission and the co-legislators? Okay. I mean, just, just to, to finish up uh, uh, on Mika, I mean, I mean, some uh, comments I've had from the industry, they, they feel it might be a bit too prescriptive and therefore... Um, you know, review processes aside that you just mentioned, that that you might have difficulty in adapting in, in this sort of rapidly developing environment. Maybe maybe a more principles based approach may have been better. Just just quickly, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Verena? I think it's a challenge in any regulatory framework that is trying to address an area which is fast evolving, and yeah. I think financial markets regulation has a um, genuine. Uh, issue there because we always have the tendency to um, in the legislation and regulation to be one step behind where the market is moving. At the same time, Mika, I think, and Dora as well are very much drafted to try to be technologically neutral, to try to really set some common framework of regulation and supervision that should be able to adapt and apply to new developments as they, they emerge. Obviously, we will need to keep that under review, um, but I'm quite positive that it sets the right framework that allows, on the one hand, for continued innovation, but also for a common framework for looking at the risks and the challenges that that presents to the regulatory objectives of fair and orderly markets and investor protection. Okay, lovely. Okay, well, um, okay, let's talk a bit about benchmarks now. Obviously, these are really critical for for the financial services industry as well as companies doing hedging and so on. Um, some EU firms have complained that, I mean, there are concerns that um, they eventually won't be able to access or use third country benchmarks uh, because the requirements of the benchmarks regulation starting, uh, I think, in 2024. Um, can you discuss what what ESMA's views on that, what your concerns are, and, and how maybe you're looking to sort of ease access to those very critical third third country benchmarks that, that some people need absolutely have to use. Yes, um, third country benchmarks, as you say, are still currently under a so-called grace period until the end of December 2023, which, by the way, can be extended to 2025. So we need to see whether the Commission makes use of that. But at the moment, indeed, therefore, uh, from the 1st of January 2024, these third country benchmarks would be subject to the benchmark regulation. And um, we at ESMA certainly echo 
some of the concerns that have been raised by EU firms around that. We've said that publicly in a response to a commission consultation and believe that uh, we need to look at how to deal with that. Because what we see is that when the transitional period expires, this could result in EU investors having reduced access to third country benchmarks. And that would create a real competitive disadvantage for EU players vis-a-vis -vis their non-EU counterparts. No. So we support an introduction of a new category of um, what the Commission is thinking about, strategic benchmarks, which would be uh, only benchmarks subject, uh, that would be the only benchmarks subject to mandatory compliance um, and restrictions of use. So it would allow some of the less strategic benchmarks that are currently provided from outside the EU to continue to be used without having to meet all the benchmark regulation requirements. So that might help us to deal with this issue. And okay. at the same time, we see already a number of third country benchmark providers actually applying for authorization. Um, um, administrators have, we've just recently recognized two new administrators um, and that adds up to some existing ones already to about nine, but that's clearly a very small number compared to what we estimate to be over 300 probably that are used uh, by EU firms at the moment. Okay, fine. Okay, lovely. Well, um, well so moving on, Verena, um, so, you know, as we've seen, rising interest rates have, have triggered uh, considerable market volatility uh, or turbulence. Um, and, you know, this is quite dangerous in a financial system that relies quite heavily on leverage, be it through, you know, repos, derivatives and, and, and other instruments. Um, are there any particular markets or leverage practices in the EU or even elsewhere that, that sort of really concern you? And also, do you foresee any changes in rules or supervisory practices to detect possible systemic issues in the market? We certainly are entering, or we are in the middle of a rather challenging period with high inflation and rising interest rates. And that is particularly challenging given the high indebtedness that we see in the public and private sector at the moment. And leverage is a particular risk there that we are monitoring very closely. It's not always easy to detect across the whole of the wide ranging capital markets um, uh, players, um, also due to data limitations, but we are certainly monitoring it where we can very actively. And let me just give you an example, maybe where we are particularly spending quite a lot of time is in the funds space, so yeah. investment funds and the build-up of leverage in that area. And um, as part of the Alternative Investment Funds Directive, uh, we actually have the possibility now um, that national competent authorities can set leverage limits to curtail the build-up of risks by leveraged funds. And uh, we as ESMA issued some guidelines on how that provision could be used and we are also with the national authorities performing regular monitoring of alternative investment funds based on that common framework and our more data-driven supervisory efforts that I talked about earlier. Our aim is not to focus only on the most leveraged funds, but also to assess vulnerabilities such as liquidity mismatches 
that yeah. can be amplified by the use of leverage. So, for example, real estate funds or corporate bond funds. And yeah. um, so national authorities have not yet used the leverage limits that they now have the ability to set, but actually the Central Bank of Ireland published uh, late last year a consultation paper on thinking about putting such measures in place vis-a-vis -vis property funds. And uh, that's still under consideration, but I think it's very positive that national authorities are now looking at these additional tools that they have at their hand. Yeah. And um, with the regular reporting, we will clearly continue to keep a very close eye on that as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, with banks, um, you know, you've had Basel III and so on. I mean, they, they seem to be quite well prepared and insulated for these events. But you go into the sort of shadow banking or non-bank financial institution sector, which you kind of just been talking about. Um, that's a very sort of um, uh, uh, opaque area, if you like. I mean, I mean, they, they, these things change all the time. Are you concerned that there could be quite a lot of leverage hiding in pockets of this as we find found out in the uk with the with the pension schemes you know that there, there's a lot more leverage in there than i think was appreciated i know in the eu it's not such a big problem but you know what, what are your thoughts about that you know have we got all the bases covered so i think it's important first of all to uh, think about when we look at the financial sector in the financial services we need to look at it very broadly and clearly we have big important players that we all know and where we uh, also now have a European supervisory system that clearly has a lot of visibility and data and stringent standards such as in banking. Um, I think I always want to be very careful when we talk about um, shadow banking because I don't think that's a term which is very helpful. Okay. Actually, if you look at the non-bank financial intermediation that exists, it's huge and it's very broad ranging. I was talking earlier about the fund management sector, which in itself is quite broad ranging. But that is a regulated sector where, you know, national supervisors actually have a lot of ability to supervise, to have a picture of what's going on in the funds and things like that. There are other parts of the system where we have much less visibility. Some of that visibility has improved through, for example, some of the post-trade reporting um, uh, through uh, and central counterparty clearing has also reduced risks in that area. But nonetheless, it's clear that we need to continue to keep an eye on this wide range of different parts of the financial sector. And sometimes these are players that you don't really think of as financial market players, but that are engaged in the financial markets. So we've seen that in the energy markets, for example. We've seen big energy companies who, because of their day-to-day -day business of providing energy and buying resources, um, hedge some of that business in the derivatives markets, in the financial markets. Yeah. They are uh, active as part of the clearing system, for example. But they are not the players that we normally have supervisory oversight over or yeah. where we have good visibility of what's actually going on in that sector. So this is an area that clearly we need to collectively, as public authorities, have a broad view on. And I think it's something where we need to be careful to fall into the trap of just talking about um, particular kind of 
shadow banks, which is probably not the right term. It is much more about making sure that we understand the interconnectedness and how different parts of the financial sector and non-financial sector interlink and where risks might be building up. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's quite a quite a, that interconnectedness bit is, is is quite a challenging part of the puzzle to solve. Okay, um, maybe just sort of moving on a bit. I mean, can you discuss how ESMA is working with other regulators across the world? Um, you know, I'm thinking non-EU regulators, so some of the initiatives you're involved in, uh, maybe some of the global standard setters as well, maybe. I mean, would a, can you discuss that, please? <laughs> now, ESMA certainly remains um, uh, very engaged in the international world, and uh, we maintain strong relations and cooperation both uh, bilaterally, but also with the international regulatory bodies, such as IOSCO and the Financial Stability Board, for example. Yeah. Bilaterally, we engage regularly with our counterparts around the globe, um, in particularly in exchanging views on key emerging risks that might have also an effect on our domestic European markets, yeah. um, because obviously the financial system is global and there's a lot of interactions. So we need to interact very closely with our counterparts, both on the risk analysis side, and there we share, for example, with the regulators that are most close of the markets that are most closely related to the EU, UK, US, some of the Asian markets, um, information very regularly and think about what are the regulatory responses at global level that we need to find, for example, on non financial, uh, non-banking financial intermediation that we just talked about. Yeah. At the same time, we also have um, very close links in terms of our direct supervisory engagement with other supervisors around uh, the globe uh, because we supervise global players where we need to make sure that we have good um, interlinkages and follow similar supervisory strategies and, and uh, share our information. At the multilateral level, um, ESMA is actually an observer on the IOSCO board, okay. which means that we are engaged actively in the work on regulation of securities and capital markets at the global level. And that, um, for example, means that I, also, I personally am engaged in co-chairing work streams on sustainable finance and um, working again on, on other parts of the regulatory work at the global level. Um, and we are also involved in a number of work streams at the Financial Stability Board. Okay, oh, that's, that's quite comprehensive. Okay, well, just, just to sort of wrap this up, um, I mean, in your view, what are some of the biggest opportunity as well as challenges facing uh, securities regulators, you know, over the, say, the next five years? That's a big question. And, uh, <laughs> a, no, a very open one for you too. <laughs> um, no, I mean, if I had the crystal ball of knowing where we would be in five years' time, that would certainly be very helpful, but I yeah. don't have that. So all I can say is that the current environment is clearly marked by a lot of uncertainty and significant global um, and political um, developments as well. So that is something which we need to, as ESMA, remain able to react to in a timely and agile manner. Yeah. And that is part of our work that we do on the regulatory basis at European, global and with our national supervisors. Um, so this is something that clearly will remain very important. 
as I said, we've just published the ESMA strategy for the next five years, and there's certainly the importance of focusing on having effectively working and stable financial markets is key. We need to make sure that there's stability in the markets for them to function and fulfill their um, role properly. We need to foster the uh, financial sector resilience as part of our cooperation with the European authorities and the national supervisors on the ground, ensuring effective crisis management preparation. And we also need to make sure that we continue with the ongoing challenges of transforming uh, the economy towards low carbon, sustainable, uh, and are able to take into account the developments that are happening on the uh, technological side and building on the data capacity to be able to analyze all of that. In terms of the retail investor yeah. um, protection, which is another core priority for us for the next five years, it is really about making sure that we properly understand where the risks for investors are. We know high inflation clearly has an impact on retail investors on the ground, together with the um, issues of energy prices and all of that. We need to make sure that ultimately retail investors are properly able to make informed investment decisions in that environment and are supported in that by the financial market players and that they ultimately can um, fulfill their medium and long-term financial needs through the capital market. Yep. Everyone is aging. We need to make sure that there's yep. proper investment for that going forward. Yeah, so, so it's a complex picture that uh, is certainly um, challenging us uh, at the European level. But um, my key aim is to make sure that we, as ESMA, together with the national authorities, are prepared and are able to react where we need to and ultimately underpin the system through strong supervision and enforcement and make sure that the European markets are able to function in an orderly and stable way and protect investors. Well, that was certainly an interesting discussion with Verena Ross, Chair of ESMA, who gave us some great insights into the authorities' work on ESG, data, transparency, financial stability and benchmarks. If you're interested in these kind of topics, please visit www.globalriskregulator.com. And if you would like to hear future podcasts from us, you can subscribe via Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'd like to wish everyone listening to stay safe and well. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, 
What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.